the one who falls and gets back up is so much stronger than the one who never fell. Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode 229. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator with a passion for learning, understanding difficult concepts, and then breaking them down so we can all use and apply the most current research to improve our productivity and results in our schools, our sports environments, and modern workplaces. Today, we're welcoming Howard Rankin back for the fourth time to the podcast to cover his newly released book, Falling to Grace. Before reading Howard's book this month, I had no idea of his story. I saw his book come out in April on his birthday, and I knew we'd have to have him back on the show to discuss it, knowing it would be full of thought-provoking lessons, but I had no idea just how personal and deep his story would be. If you recall, Howard Rankin first appeared on the podcast this time last year, episode 146, where he taught us how not to think and that our thinking is full of cognitive biases. While reading this new book, I found myself asking a question that he'd later answer in the book, showing me it's easy to jump to a conclusion, but that we should all be aware of the limitations of our thinking. This book also brought to light that we're all spiritual beings having a human experience and the importance of seeing the spirit in everyone and treating them without judgment as we never know what their internal struggles might be. We learned from Dr. Marie Gervais on episode 214 on her book, The Spirit of Work, that there's a shift when we can see someone's spiritual side and we can also connect science to everything that we do. If you've ever looked at someone and noticed their spirit, you'll see exactly what I mean. I'll never forget the first time I looked at someone and saw them shining brightly, seeing their potential that I think they were unaware of. They were sitting in front of me and it's a moment I'll never forget and was probably one of the reasons why I do what I do today. We all have tremendous potential within us, and this podcast was designed to help us to become aware of it and then use it. But sometimes things happen in our life that make us question the direction we're going, but there's always a way around life's obstacles. Howard's book shows us that we can move beyond anything and connect our internal struggles to the most current brain research in this quest to move towards redemption and healing. I knew Howard lost his license as a psychologist and that it was important to cover, but I didn't know how, which really didn't matter to me. None of us are exempt from the story Howard will share. No one is exempt from falling in our personal or professional lives. But if we do, Will we know how to fall to grace with the lessons Howard will share with us? Howard's story of tremendous loss and pain hold lessons we can all benefit from, especially if we want to reach our highest levels of productivity and achievement in this thing we're living called life. And if there's something inside holding us back, like Howard will share, or anything else that might be bothering us internally, there is a way around it to what he calls redemption, and it's available for anyone who wants to do the work to achieve it. We can be redeemed only to the extent to which we see ourselves. Let's welcome back Howard Rankin for a fourth time to the podcast and see what we can learn from his lessons of falling to grace. Welcome back, Howard. It's so wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast for a fourth time. Oh, my pleasure. I can't wait for six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I know, really uh, gracious of you to have me back, and I'm honored to be here. Well, thank you. I'm sure you know, I think the world of you, and I'm excited for the books that we were just talking about that are coming up. 
um, that you're going to continue to write and give us new insights to your research and how we can apply it to our daily lives. So I'm looking forward to the next five that we have for sure. <laughs> yeah, great. Good. Me too. Me too. Always uh, an enlightening and enjoyable connection. Definitely. Well, Howard, I've got to say, though, this last book was pretty painful for anyone to read and witness firsthand the tremendous loss that occurred. It was heartbreaking for me to know this happened to you and your family. I had no idea. And like the note I sent you when I started reading your book, the lessons you're sharing with us are priceless because no one is exempt from falling. And your experience gives us all a pathway to fall with grace. So I want to thank you so much for sharing such a personal story for others to get value from and apply to our own lives. Thanks for this. Well, you know, I'm one of the values of having an experience that um, is difficult is that you can share that experience and, and what helped you to help others. And so that's really the reason I wrote the book was I know there are a lot of people in a similar situation. I think I might have something useful to say. And that was really the purpose, uh, the main purpose of the book, for sure. Definitely. Well, let's get right into it because you say in the beginning of the book that you use your own story mainly as a guide to the challenges of illuminating one's conscience and what that entails, and that people can read the circumstances in the appendix of what happened. But the general idea is that you were a well-known psychologist with a very good reputation. You'd appeared on The View and featured on 2020, as well as many other media outlets. And then you crossed a line into this gray area and everything changed for you. For those who want to read the entire story, they can just go read the book. But for this interview, I want to focus on not so much what happened, but for someone listening who might be struggling with something internally, what can we all learn from your experience about the importance of dealing with those difficult emotions of guilt or shame? You know, I really think it's the default setting of the mind to try to absolve yourself of any responsibility, particularly under you know, difficult things. Uh, every felon I ever interviewed when I was a clinical psychologist, I mean, everyone said, oh yeah, well, you know, the judge let me down or the lawyer really screwed up or this guy also, you know, he should never have said that or this guy should have done that, you know. Uh, yeah, but you did walk into a bank with a gun, you know, <laughs> um, but the, it's the default setting. It's uh, you're being, and here's the point. Maybe you were treated harshly, but that does not absolve you of your initial responsibility for what you did. Own up. And as I say, I think the default setting of the mind, particularly in today's world, is, oh, I was a victim. I'm, you know, I didn't do anything. It's not my fault. And that's the worst thing that you can do. It'll keep you trapped, trapped in that cage of misinformation, lies, deceit, self-deceit. And you'll never move forward. You just won't. So the first thing you absolutely have to get to is acceptance. I accept responsibility for what I did. And interestingly, of course, when I look at these things, you know, I did see a parallel between the five stages of grief, you know, denial, depression, bargaining, and eventually acceptance. Acceptance is critical. And we'll talk about this as we go, because one of the things that I perhaps was shocked about the most was how much being honest really how powerful that was just being honest and saying yep i screwed up i should never have done that do you think there's a a way of being too honest like of of 
of taking on the world's issues all on yourself. Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, oh, no, no, absolutely. I mean, like all virtues and values, they can be misused, you know, like being too compassionate means your boundaries collapse and you can end up being codependent. So that's not very good, but that's a misuse of those things. So again, taking, you know, owning up to things that really aren't yours to own up isn't actually honesty. Is it? It's oh. it's it's somewhat of a deception for whatever reason. So I still stick by this. That those values, those core values, and particularly what I learned here, honesty was amazing. Amazing. That it, and one of my questions later on just seems pertinent now that. We learned when I was working with Bob Proctor in the seminars about taking responsibility for your thoughts, feelings, and actions, and your results, that you don't blame anybody else along the way. And that just seems like what you're saying right now, that whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, whatever you take action on, and whatever results you get are all yours. And that was a huge thing to learn when you're younger so that you don't right. blame other people along the way. Well, you right. know, you're in sales. Well, the leads are weak because you gave me a bad set of leads. No, right. you <laughs> don't know how to close the lease. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. that whole idea, right? That's what you're saying. Take responsibility for your actions. And Absolutely. Absolutely. Along Absolutely. Because if you don't do that, you're going to spend all your time trying to justify yourself and you're not going to get to a solution that way. You're just not. You're just going to be stuck, stuck in the same situation, the same mindset. And the reality is you need to move on. Got it. So in your book, you actually mentioned that some studies suggest that 70% of people who experience trauma, so something happens to them bad, um, they either come back stronger, but there's been concern that it can be misleading. And there's a large number of people who struggle to get back to their pre-trauma baseline or never recover at all. And I noticed this when I was interviewing someone recently who also lost their license, that there was so much pain around that whole thing of loss and everything that happened to the family whether someone's in the public eye or not, your book really is a guide to help begin this healing process after a fall, whatever it is. But can you describe the stages that we should expect to go through when rebuilding our life after such a significant loss? Where, where do we even begin? Well, typically what happens is you're, you're very angry. You know, you think that you might be probably angry with yourself if you have a degree of honesty, but you're also angry with, you know, people who are accusing you or judging you um, or you know, literally the judge, um, you know, people who are, you know, buying into a story that probably has been, you know, changed and manipulated and framed in a different way than you would like it seen. So typically there's a lot of anger, maybe some revenge fantasies that keep going around in your mind um, and, and, and some anger at yourself, hopefully, um, for putting yourself and other people, because it's not just yours, it's, you know, your spouse, your, your kids, your, you know, everyone, it's not just your problem. And, and so anger definitely is part of it. But there comes a point where you have to stop that. You have to stop that because that kind of keeps you sort of in the victim mentality and not accepting responsibility. You know, we have a binary brain. Man, if you're mad at somebody else, you can't be, can't be at fault. Yeah, you can be mad at somebody else because they did you wrong, but that doesn't mean you didn't do anything right so it's very easy to find fault with other people you know accusers lawyers judges the newspaper whoever you know they're not perfect and you're going to see them as betraying you and you're going to be angry at them and i've seen people locked in that state 
for years, maybe the rest of their life. And that's not helpful. You're being controlled by them, even as you're mad at them. You can't do that. And so that anger for me, it was, you know, that anger. And then I came to a point when, stop, stop. You can't go on like this, right? You can't. Ask yourself, what is the best that could happen out of this situation? You know, if in five years' time this turned out to be an amazing situation, why? How can I make that? How can I contribute to that? And that mindset is really critical because it gets you moving from just thinking about all these revenge on other people to, okay, it's on me. I'm the only one who can fix this, right? And I've got to fix my problem, not everyone else's problem. Exactly. Exactly. That's hard. As I was reading your story, I kept thinking, obviously, with my primitive brain, hmm. how could this entire situation have been prevented in the first place? And I know that thinking is flawed. What hmm. cognitive bias is, you know, how could this all have been prevented be? Let's just go there because I know you're the king of cognitive biases. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, you know, and perhaps the listeners do need a little bit of background here. The situation was that I had seen a female client um, in 2005, um, borderline personality with some trauma issues, um, very seductive. I mean, very seductive. And for the three years we worked together, I told her, like, <laughs> you know, this isn't about that at all. This is about you overcoming the problems you've got. We worked pretty well together for three years. Um, and then she moved on to another therapist, which I was sort of relieved at, to be honest. Um, we we done pretty well. She moved on. Then she said, well, I'd like to come back and see you. And I said, well, not really as a therapist. I don't want to do it. She said, no, no, I don't. I just want to keep you updated on what's going on. That's fine. And so she started coming back periodically to see me. And we did this over four years. And one time in 2012, leaving my office, and of course, I knew, I knew what she was trying to do. <laughs> and I knew it. There was part of me that kind of liked it, I guess, you know. And as she left my office, she kissed me, and then it degenerated over a very short period of time into a consensual relationship. And then I said, no, we can't do this anymore. And then a few months uh, a few weeks later, I got a call from the licensing board saying somebody had filed a complaint against me for sexual misconduct. I knew this woman was seductive. You know, she's classic borderline personality. I knew that. I also knew some other things that when I first met her, she said she had been raped by a police officer. But as I got to know her, that kind of wasn't quite right. She'd been trying to seduce this guy for ages too, okay? But me, stupid me, although hindsight is twenty twenty, why didn't I realize the potential there that having got me involved in a relationship, she was now going to turn around, distort it, say I molested her, what have you, and hopefully get some money out of it by selling me. That's, you know, it's obvious seeing that. Mm -hmm. But, and I, and there was part of me who knew that, but, you know, she got the better of me. And, you know, I didn't say, no, that's it, stop it, which I had been doing for seven years, but she hadn't come on quite that strong that was seven years. I didn't say that. And I should have. I should have said, you know, no, this is, this, this is going nowhere good, and I shouldn't be doing that. It's putting me at risk. I shouldn't do it. But I did. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, looking back, you can say there were obvious signs there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> obvious signs that this was going nowhere at all. Right? A weak moment, probably. Yeah. Even with the fact you wrote the book, Intuitive Rationality, 
<laughs> Did you ever think this person in front of me with this borderline personality disorder could potentially destroy my life, career, and future like that suddenly? Interesting. I'm not sure I ever put it that way, although probably I should have. I don't, I don't know that I said that, you know, and perhaps if somebody like you had said that, knew what was going on and said, Howard, you know, this is too dangerous. Don't mess with her. You know, just don't. I might've listened, but I didn't, I didn't tell anyone about that. It was just me. It was in my own head. Did I think it was a risk? Yes. Did I really weigh all the risks and the potential possibilities? No. And had I done so, I wouldn't have done this. So, I mean, there's varying degrees of acknowledgement of potential future consequences. But mine weren't strong enough, Mm -hmm. clearly. Yeah, no, that's all understandable. And I was actually thinking about these questions on the, my morning hike this morning. And, you know, I, the, the whole time I was writing them, I was thinking about your fall to grace. And then I actually thought, what about the other party's fall to grace? And I thought, is emotional intelligence not enough? Do we now, now, now need to know about personality disorders with people? <laughs> where, where do we even begin when we're looking at people and thinking about question. the safe person for me to spend time with. Right. No, I think that's really a good question. I think it's probably something that most people in the coaching or therapy business probably do think about, you know, because the atmosphere and all the legalities around being a therapist, I mean, got to the point near the, the end of my career where don't I really don't want to go to court to testify what I think, you know. Mm, right. uh, I, I just don't want to be put in the middle of the situation. I remember, and 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 this was before obviously this happened, but I was beginning to become much more, and I'm sure this is true of many therapists, very sensitive. You know, I had some friends who said, We're having some marital difficulties. We'd really like to come to you. I said, No way. <laughs> I don't want to go there, you know. And if you start taking that attitude you know and there are cases and things like difficult uh, couples counseling that is really difficult that um yeah i think a lot of people say i'm not going there i'm not going there well you also talked about false accusations and that our limited brain doesn't easily undo past associations and emotions especially those flashbulb moments that have high emotion And it requires effort for someone to change the things that we've heard because we've got our biased, egocentric thinking. Mm -hmm. And so in a world that everything spreads so quickly online, Mm -hmm. it's permanent. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with your personal life being broadcast all over the internet for people to read and then put their own biases on what they're reading? Well, you know, it it is true. And it's got, you know, it's, got really ugly it's got really ugly i've i've had this fortunately it's a fantasy (laughs) um but you know being on some tv show and the presenter you know um misrepresents (laughs) what i did oh you you know yeah i mean you took the lead you you seduced this woman no i didn't i mean this was mutual but now you've said that in front of a million people that's what they hear. Even if he comes back and says, well, no, okay, perhaps I should rephrase that. It's too late. <laughs> it's too late. Right. He's put that image in somebody's mind, and they're going to have to work hard to get rid of it. Right? Right. That's why first impression, you can never you know, get a second chance to make a first impression. You know, and I see that all, all the time where people try to, Put it, frame, frame the narrative. That's the framing effect. Frame it and make you look like this. 
And even if subsequently they say, well, no, okay, I realize I perhaps have gone, it's too late. Mm-hmm. It's out there. And, you know, how many people actually go back and, and say, well, actually, sorry, yeah, perhaps I shouldn't have said that. Nobody says that anyway. But even if they did, it's still too late. Mm-hmm. It's right. still too late. That, that impression is right there. Now, yeah. Howard, we didn't have to deal with this when we were growing up, right? Like, I remember someone said something about me that I didn't like in my college years. And right. that comment just was gone after a few weeks because we don't have the, we didn't have the internet back then. And Right. No, but, no, that's true. You know, that's and, right. You don't. You got stuck in this because now this damaging behavior of whatever, I think, I think it was an an article that you wanted removed. I couldn't find it. So it's gone now, but what should we all know about the importance of our digital imprint um, and the legal action that we can take? If there is something that you don't like that someone says about you. Well, it's, it's challenging because the paper, the local paper that covered this had some comments by the chairman of the board of ethics and examiners, who was the chairman overseeing my case. And he misrepresented it. He said, well, this was, he was quoted as saying, this was an open and shut case. Well, no, it wasn't. I argued she was a former client, but she was. She'd been out of therapy four years. There's a distinction there. So it wasn't an open and shut case. And then he said, in my 10 years serving on this this is the first person we've had. To, no, first of all, he hadn't been serving 10 years. He'd been serving seven years. And secondly, there was at least one other person who'd lost his license. And there were, based on subsequent research of mine, 220 people over those 10 years who did not renew their license for one reason or another. And one can assume that probably among some of them were some underlying ethical issues. They just choose to not renew their license. And that was it. So you know, he, he totally misrepresented it from my perspective. Now, what do you do? So I went to the newspaper, said, you need to remove this. Oh, no, we're not going to remove it. No, no, no not going to remove it that's there um it's a you know what do you do do you what, send the you, you go see a lawyer and you you now pursue but now you can okay so let's let's look at that based on you know my philosophy that came out of well you could go see a lawyer right and you could go through this and maybe you would get Maybe you get a decision you would want. Maybe you wouldn't. You would spend thousands of dollars, which you do not have. You would be locked in this thing for maybe a couple of years, maybe longer, during which time this thing would still be all over the Internet. What's the point? Is that the way to spend your time, energy, money? I didn't think so. Right. I didn't think so. Let it go. I let it go. Let it go. Let it go. You know, yes, it probably shouldn't have been out there. I'm just not going to. Because the other thing would be that now I'm still letting these people control my life. Mm -hmm. That's not helpful. That's not helpful to me. And, you know, maybe I would have won. Maybe I wouldn't. You know, what would have happened? (laughs) I can't really see a whole lot of good coming from it. Right. And that's not where I needed to put my energy. My energy needed to put on making this a really positive event in my life. How do I do that from here? What do I do? Okay. That's where my all my energy and time needs to go on that. Nothing else. Nothing. You can't, I mean, I understand why you'd want to do it, but don't. You know, I'm not, you know, there, there may be some cases where, you know, you've been obviously screwed and you can win millions of dollars and all uh, Maybe, maybe. But for most people, that, that's not the situation. That is not the situation. So you mentioned that there were people who make up their minds based on what they're going to read online. So whether you let it go and it's still there, people are going to make up their own minds. But for the people who know you, nothing changes like your son who you, who you went and told the story to. And he said, I know who you are. What did you learn from your son when he said that to you? Yeah. So this was, was interesting. So we knew it was going to come out in the newspaper and people would know about it. 
and my son had just graduated uh, from Duke. And like four days after graduating, I mean, he, he was in the ROTC program and he had joined the army and he was sort of called up for training like four days after graduating. And he was down in Fort Benning in Georgia. And my wife and I knew it was going to be in the newspaper. We wanted to be the ones to tell him. Very important. Very important. You be the one to tell your loved ones, your friends, as much as you can, certainly your family. And so we got on the phone and we explained what had happened. And at this point, you know, my wife had been very supportive and, you know, said it's not going to change anything and, and what have you. And so we got him on the phone and we told him that. We told him all that. And he said, Dad, no matter, I know who you are. And Mom, thank you so much for being so courageous enough to work this out. And he said, by the way, do you guys need any money? <laughs> and I mean, we both just both out, broke out, crying. Yeah, I mean, he's an amazing young man. Um, but that was, you know, because we were authentic and honest, he could be authentic and honest. You know, if we got on and I had started to say, but, you know, really, it wasn't my fault and I should have done this and this person's crazy and, and don't believe anything you need. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's, it's not the same. It's not yeah. the same. Comes back to taking responsibility that you opened up with for everything, our thoughts, feelings, and action. Absolutely. And so that's, that's hard, but it is the most rewarding thing because, you know, when you do, when you do something like this, you do feel like an outcast. You do feel you don't belong. You think everyone hates you or at least thinks you're an idiot. And you, you know, you, you really overreact. You know, you just see yourself in a very, very dark light and in an exaggeratedly dark light. Um, and what you have to have are experiences where people say, I don't care, I know who you are. Or, yeah. Sure, she, you know, whatever. That is so reassuring to become part of the tribe or a tribe again. Right. You know, humiliation and shame is, hey, you're isolated, you're out. Yeah. Nobody wants to know you. Mm -hmm. But when you make a connection like that, it is everything. And the way you make a connection by that is being honest. Mm -hmm. Is being honest. So you know, again, to all these people who, who came up to me and you know, in church, you know, first the thing in the newspaper came out on a Friday and I was serving as an usher in church on Sunday. So here's my first public appearance in church after this is on the front page of the local newspaper. I was so apprehensive. People came up to me, shook my hand, said, how I Sorry to hear about that. I know who you are. It doesn't change my opinion of you or what have you. And it was so overwhelming. You know, I mean, I thought it would be enough just to maybe smile a bit. But to get that was just, you know, four or five people, six people came up. Everyone came. Wow. And I was expecting them all to turn away and shun me and I'd be off on my own in the corner. But mm. au contraire, no. And that that's massive. That is massive when you feel you're disconnected and nobody wants to know you and they come up and want to support you. They'll only want to do that if you're honest. True, Howard. You know, when you're talking, it made me think different situation, but shame and guilt are attached uh, when I went through divorce and had a different last name suddenly. And I was so ashamed or afraid to reach out to some of my old mentors that I know were very religious. And I was terrified to reach out to them. Same, mm -hmm. same feelings. I feel like you're an outcast. You failed. And then I really needed support or I needed advice for, for this one person that I've interviewed and reached out to him and I thought I'm going to die because he's going to see my email has a different last name. I just remember the feeling of, you know, uh, uh, being afraid. 
And then the answer was, wow, look at your last name. Do you know the spiritual connotation of what Samadhi means? Uh-huh. And I just remember thinking, I didn't expect that right. acceptance, right. you know, yep. didn't expect it at all. Just like you were overwhelmed with the people that that came up to you. You expect yep. what you think, you're conditioned to think, right. I'm now an outcast. You know, you're not going to be my friend anymore because I don't align with your values. And that's mm-hmm. not the case, which... Which is nice, but what about the other side? Were there people that you thought were your friends that you figured weren't anymore? Yeah, there were. There was uh, one of my uh, client, former clients, a woman who actually kind of discovered, because her dad was a psychiatrist and told her where to look, discovered what had happened, and she went to the newspaper and told them. And... Actually, you know, this is in the book. Not only did she go to the newspaper and tell them, she actually found out, I'm not sure how she did this, but found out the phone number of a mother of another client of mine. And she called her up and said, oh, well, you know, you're not going to, you won't believe what I found out about Dr. Rankin. You're going to find out all the dirt on him in the newspaper and all the stuff tomorrow. And somebody that I had worked with and, and been sort of a friend of had also contributed to this newspaper piece, putting in a totally inappropriate comment, you know? <laughs> yeah, you get to find out who really are your friends right. and who, right. who aren't. Uh, and so even though that's painful, it's kind of useful. <laughs> True. True. Some some lessons really struck a chord with me as I was reading through the book, um, because, of course, it burns me to think that there's people that want to profit from your misery. Right. And Mm -hmm. I, I just from how we were taught way back to look at the spirit in someone and see the spirit in someone. I talk about it in the backstory. It's probably why I do this podcast that we look at everyone and see the spirit and their potential. So how do you get past that? You say for the most part, the best way is to ignore people like this instead of scratching their eyes out that you you want to do. But besides meditation and long jogs, how do you rise above operating at the low level that you want to be at with people like that? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to see that a couple of things, really, that I think are valuable. First of all, it's a waste of your time. Secondly, they still have an influence on you. I mean, the biggest thing, biggest freedom you have is this person doesn't influence me anymore. I don't care. Um, But if you say, oh, I'm going to respond to that. Well, they do have an influence on you. They are controlling you. Do you really want them to do that? Eh, no. The best thing is to ignore them. I mean, literally and, and figuratively in your mind. Okay, they can think whatever they think. You know, if they cross a line, perhaps I'll sue them for libel or what have you, but I'm not going to engage in it. It is just not worth it. And so many of us get caught up in trying to fight these things that are a total waste of time, effort, and in a lot of cases, money, you know. I'm sure you've heard about those divorce cases that, and I've, I've been, unfortunately, um, you know, the therapist involved in them where one party is determined to win, you know, no matter what it means to their kids, no matter what it means to their family, they will spend, I mean, I had one guy, one guy. He went to, he found the best, or what was considered to be the best assessor of marriages, you know, um, he would write the reports on, on the relationship assessment. Best one in the best one in the state. And when he didn't like what he said, he then hired the next best one to contradict it. And this just went on and on. He, com- he actually complained against me. He complained about another therapist because he didn't, didn't say what he wanted to say. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. Right. Uh, don't get caught up in it. Just don't. Um, so even even in one of our interviews, and you'll you'll know the one that that I'm mentioning. Someone wasn't 
in agreement of some of the work that you you did with with in, in the schools didn't agree with the technology or something and I remember that you didn't challenge him and I, I felt like that's such a learned way to be that you allow people to um, maybe critique your your work and you didn't fight back or you didn't challenge him with statistics on how it was an effective way to, to mm -hmm. measure student performance. So how do you get there? Is that just life experience that? Yeah, you get to try. Yeah, I do think it goes against the sort of natural defense. Um, so I think you have to work at that. You have to be aware of why you would do that. And you have to have practice at that, you know, to change your brain's response. Um, you know, perhaps send out a flip, cynical, <laughs> sarcastic reply, but basically don't don't engage. Right. Again, you're giving people too much power when you do that. And I don't see any value in that. So this did really hammer that home to me. It really did. I noticed really... your calmness and peacefulness during that interaction. And I thought, wow, Howard's done a lot of work in this area because um, I could just tell from how mm -hmm. he dealt with his comments and then we moved on to something else. So I just mm. thought, wow. That's interesting. You noticed that. Mm. Absolutely. And, and mm. then when I saw how you tied the brain to this, I thought, well, how did an understanding of your brain help you with this and in life that I noticed in that interview? That's interesting. Um, well, you know, we program our brains by what we do, what we think. I mean, the brain is very, very trainable. It can probably do some amazing things that nobody's thought of training it to do. Um, so it's probably got a lot more potential. And in many ways, I hope it does, because in, in some ways, our brains need an upgrade, given, the you know, we haven't really had an upgrade for millions of years, and we need one because the world is different. Um, so, you know, it is being aware, it is having an understanding and an emotional connection to an idea. Uh, and then it is actually acting and behaving, behaving in that particular way, which changes the brain. You know that sets the 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 opportunity for neuroplasticity by doing things, not just by thinking about them, but by doing things. Well, maybe thinking about them. There are some studies where intense visualization um, probably changes the brain too. Um, but anyway, you have to do something. Um, so just just having an idea about something isn't enough. No, I just I was just thinking that. Interestingly enough, like so many things in life, I think back to my childhood. And to some extent, you know, I remember sometimes, I remember one very specific instance where I got really angry with, with uh, one of my friends. But for the most part, I kind of just blew it off and I didn't. So, you know, there may be something more inborn in me for whatever reason or trained um and part of that was my dad was a great guy had a good sense of humor but he was very stressed out and could be a little explosive and so we always went around Shh, just be careful of what you say and so probably from an early age i learned to keep my mouth shut and just observe and, and be a little bit more you know mindful so that probably contributed to that ability. Got it. Interesting. What What did you learn from Mary Frances O'Connor and her book, The Grieving Brain, that we could all learn from to kind of dive deeper into how our brains influence everything we go through? Well, yeah, the brain does. And again, you know, what has fascinated me, again, probably for most of my life, but certainly... Um, at different stages and, and specifically now, you know, the whole aspect of consciousness and what we focus on, what we focus on and the automatic feeling or the thought that comes with it that we then accept, you know? Um, we were just talking about this before we came on. Both of us lost beloved dogs 
in the very recent past. And you can look at that and say, oh, I miss him so much, which is true. You know, I'm sure I miss him so much. But then you can look at it and say, well, you know, my grief is proportional to the joy that he brought, brought us. If he hadn't brought us joy, I wouldn't be grieving. You know, I wouldn't care, right? And that, you know, he is, he, is, he, he is part of this whole nature, our world, where love can be found. <laughs> it's just another example of love. And we need to be grateful for that. Yes, he's not here right now, but love still exists, you know. And the next dogs that I'm, I'm sure we'll both get will be just as loving and amazing. And I think keeping that big picture in mind is, is important to moderate that because it's very easy in grief to get really focused on what you've lost and what's not there anymore. And of course, a certain amount of that's necessary, but at some point you can move on from there. And not deny that you miss this animal, but just appreciate the experience that it gave you. You know? Right. And and I loved what you had said before we started that everything exists, that that in this consciousness in the world, that that everything is here still. We haven't lost. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I did, you know, in the dog still exists in some ways, you know, the echoes of the bark, his favorite seat, um, you know, whatever it is, chasing a squirrel, whatever. It's all still there, just in a slightly different way. You, you, you mentioned you had some thoughts on your walk, on your jog today. I, I had some on my walk, which were around creativity. And I thought of this example, you know, you look up, you look up in the clouds and you say, oh my gosh, don't those clouds, they look like an elephant. And somebody says, oh my gosh, that's so clever of you. No, you just noticed it. It was there. You noticed it. You didn't create it. You just noticed it. And in many respects, everything is there that we need. Mm -hmm. We just got to notice it. Mm -hmm. And of course, we don't. We don't. That's what I wanted to ask. Have you felt the energy of your dog around since he's been gone? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Energy is mm -hmm. always there. So that's another reassuring sign. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Oh, he's still here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. I can't wait till you come out with that next book. That's going to be interesting for sure. And um, we we talked, uh, my next question for you was um, going back to accepting responsibility. I think we really covered that. I don't think I need to ask you more. Um, but maybe if we could just talk a little bit about how trauma impacts the body. So you mentioned Bessel van der Kock and Dr. Leaf as examples in the mm. book. Why do we need to forgive ourselves as well as others for our physical and mental health? Mm. Good, good question. You know, my perception of it is we have this amazing subconscious mind, body, spirit. You've, had John Leaf on your show. I've had him on mine. Amazing guy. The Secret Language of Cells was a landmark book for me to read, right? It's just mind-blowing, these trillions of cells inside us connecting all the time in these most amazing ways. Just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And that is potentially who we are. And then unfortunately, along comes consciousness <laughs> and, you know, we start misinterpreting things or thinking of things only in one way or not, you know, closing our eyes and so not really seeing what's there, what's possible. And just, you know, we shape ourselves um, through that. And um, I think that's a big misunderstanding that we have about consciousness and, and about the treatment of health general and mental health in particular um you know the treat the history of the treatment of mental health even to this day considered is really a tragedy is tragedy um and we don't understand it 
Well, perhaps we do. And people are beginning to realize that, you know, there is this conscious, subconscious, mind, body, spirit. They have to be aligned. Your body knows what it needs. Your body knows what it needs. And it'll send every microsecond things into your consciousness. And you think, oh, yeah, yeah. And you think you thought the idea. No, you didn't. Your mind, body, spirit thought it. There's a difference in consciousness between awareness, oh, something's just popped into my head, and agency, oh, I've just created this connection and these thoughts. So a lot of time we're not in agency, we're in awareness. Something pops into our head, brought to us by our mind, body, spirit, um, based on the best guess and all our old habits about what's happening. Yeah, of course it is. We don't stop and we don't stop and ask, wait a minute, is that really? Is that right? What's it saying? And perhaps nowhere is that boundary more evident than in trauma. Okay. So in really traumatic events, you lose the consciousness and the memory of that event because it's too painful. But those sensory experiences still linger in the body. And they may manifest itself in different ways. I had a uh, my most amazing client, a woman who had severe trauma and as a result, what, what used to be called multiple personality disorders. Um, and they develop because the, the traumatic memories that each of these bits of consciousness hold are so painful, they can't be shared. And, and so what's interesting is each alter ego has that secret, but they also have physiological characteristics, right? Amazing. One, one of them, this actually happened. One of the alter egos came with a migraine. Wow. Okay. And the client came in and said, oh, Dr. Rankin, I got this horrible mic. Just nothing I can do about it. I said, okay. Because I knew which alter ego it was. I plotted them all out. We did a hypnosis session where I communicated with that alter ego and said, no, time to rest, go back. You know, She came out of the hypnosis and said, oh, my God, what do you do? The migraine's completely gone. <laughs> They're completely gone. Wow. Now, that's an extreme example. But it is an example of what happens. We get this disconnect. So our body is feeling all this stuff but we can't access it consciously. And there's the challenge. And the challenge is you actually do have to access it consciously. Because if you don't, you'll still have this fragmentation of yourself. Really, it's fragmented personalities rather than multiple personalities. You still have this fragmentation. And so you have to resolve those traumas. You have to bring them into consciousness. You have to deal with them. You have to almost exorcise them. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with this woman. It took us 12 years. Wow. And then she was able to move on with her life, really for the first time, as her, not dominated subconsciously by all these dramatic memories. They're buried inside of us. We, taking meds, symptomatic relief, you know. You've got to access them and you've got to get them out. And do you think that some strategies to help get these events to the surface could be tapping and saying, mm -hmm. you know, even though going through the routine, you've heard of that, even though yeah, this happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think that's one strategy? It is. I mean, I think there are a variety of strategies and the EMDRs, I think certainly would work for some people. I think one of the problems, again, with being too rational is we assume all strategies work for all people. No, they probably wouldn't. Uh, and people at different stages of their recovery from trauma. But EMDR is a respected um, technique for helping bring things to surface. And in some ways, the therapist has to be very clued into what's going on, understanding it, and, you know, navigate their own way that works for this individual, you know, works for this person. And that's a big, 
it's a big challenge, no question about that. Um, but but well worth it in the end. Well yeah, worth it. Sure. You know, and, and in the same way, we all have those things buried, may not be traumas, inside ourselves. Hopefully we can access them, bring them into consciousness and examine them and see them differently. So we can all reach our highest levels of productivity. Absolutely. Lifetime. Howard, if I was to sum up the top lessons learned from your story, falling to grace, I'm just going to take a stab at it. And I'm just going to say that I think the first one is is accepting responsibility for our thoughts, feelings, actions, everything we do and not blaming others for the things that happened to us. What else comes to mind as a top lesson that you want people to take away? I think being more expansive in their thinking and challenging their thinking, recognizing that there are all sorts of opportunities out there to be seen in terms of how you view the world and yourself. You know, a lot of people are very negative about themselves. They don't need to be. You know, they just keep repeating that and it becomes a habit. They never challenge it, right? We've all made mistakes. Nobody's perfect. We're stupid human beings, okay? Right? And maybe the biggest thing you can do is accept that and look at yourself honestly, you know? And again, uh, it's interesting because this is related to trauma. I wanted to tell people, you know, I I started writing and and using my background as a way to help other people tell their stories and writing content. And, you know, whenever anyone, you know, approached me and said, oh, I'd be interested in your work and help me with this book, I felt immediately that I had to tell them. (laughs) Now, maybe that was a bit oversensitive at the time, but over time, I still do that. I tell them. And there's one story that I, if we got time, I'd really like to tell. So this was just a few months after this, and I was looking for ghostwriting gigs. And this guy, a really interesting guy, very successful businessman, reached out to me and said, oh, you know, when he chatted, yeah, I'd really like you to help me with my book. And I thought, oh, I'm going to have to tell him. So I told him what happened. And there was a silence at the end of the phone. And then he said, hey, they lost my gain. (laughs) And I could have reached through the phone and hugged that guy. Um, But, you know, the technical problems in doing that (laughs) prohibited that. But we worked together. We worked together. He's an amazing guy. One of the youngest vice president in banking. Just incredible. As we go on, the story tells me that actually he has Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS. And actually, as we're working together, he's beginning to deteriorate. Um, in fact, one time he calls me, we're Skyping at that time from his hospital bed. But, you know, he's an amazing guy. We're doing this, and then one time his wife called me and said, he's not doing well. Let's get this done as quickly as we can. So, yeah, worked really hard, did it, got it all together. Had a great conversation with him. We finally finished the book appreciated it you're on my team and he died the next day and that had such an impact on me it still does obviously that if i hadn't lost my license i would never met that guy right i wouldn't be doing that i wouldn't have helped him leave a legacy i wouldn't and suddenly you know that that made it so much more meaningful to me You never know where you're going to get that meaning from. But, you know, again, that's where the honesty and being able to tell that without fear of people saying, oh, you're you're an idiot if you did that. Oh, I don't want anything to do with you. And I'm sure I lost a couple of gigs because of that, because people didn't want to work with me. That's fine. That's your choice. But, you know, like with trauma, and Bob Moore, who's a big trauma expert, said on one of my podcasts, when he hears people talking about their trauma and they start to cry, he knows they haven't resolved it. And in the same way, if I were telling stories but thinking, oh, God, what's this person going to think? Oh, I hadn't resolved it. Right. Right. But if I resolved it, I can say to you, honestly, here's what I did. 
up to you to do with it what you want. I don't care. Oh, Howard. Howard, I want to thank you so much for writing this book to help all of us learn how to fall to grace like you did and reminding us that we're all human beings, hardwired with emotions. And that's a whole other podcast with Jack mm -hmm. Penson. But you gave us such an understanding of our brain and learn how we control the feelings we've attached to these hardwired emotions, helping us to rise above our primitive selves and be our best selves like you've shown us we can all accomplish. So I wanna thank you so much for all you contribute to the world with your books, your podcast and your teachings. I've definitely learned how not to think and many important lessons from you from falling to grace that would be a blessing if we could all master in our lifetime. Thank you so much, Howard. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Um, so much appreciation for that. Really do. Thank you. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.